Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here with producer Matt Lippman. How are you, Matt? Very well, thank you, Michael. Good afternoon. And today we are joined by guest, former co-host of the podcast, Alan Goldman. How are you doing, Alan? Doing just okay, Mike. Just I, I okay. Didn't pre- <laughs> I, I didn't bother preparing a bio file, and I must admit, I didn't think that was necessary. I'm insulted. <laughs> I think that's Alan, fine. Would you but- like to inter- Alan, would you like to introduce our guest? No, I'd like you to. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little disturbed that you've gone from your usual, okay, Mike, to just okay, Mike. Yeah, it's been a couple, couple, t- a, couple, right. well, a, a couple tough weeks in Israel. That's true. And that's... Uh, we're, we're, we're at a difficult moment, and that's what we're going to talk about. Although we're also at a political, somewhat turning point moment, I don't know that we'll have time to get to talking about Netanyahu running out of time to form a coalition for the fourth time in a row. And now well, uh, the president is that's presenting... That's okay, you'll have three weeks, three weeks still to talk about why they're trying to form the new change coalition. That's true. Huzzah. But I don't know that much is going to change, so we have as long as we want to discuss this moment where uh, the president has presented Yair Lapid of Yeshatid to farm it, and we'll see how successful he will be. But we wanted to discuss some major uh, events going on in the news. Obviously, we wanted to address the tragedy, uh, uh, the Lagba Omer tragedy at Meron. And we also wanted to talk about something that I think is only going to grow in the coming weeks in the news. And that's the uh, evictions at Sheikh Jarrah, the Jerusalem neighborhood. So we're a week, a l- little less than a week. We're recording on Thursday afternoon. So it's just about a week since Lagba Omer, uh, since the tragedy at Meron, 45 dead, uh, dozens wounded, an enormous trauma throughout the, I would say, the Jewish world at the, at the, the horror of these wasteful deaths. And uh, we've also been looking at reactions in the Haredi world because they obviously were the, the, the largest numbers of people at these sorts of events were Haredi Jews. What are, what are your insights and reactions a week after upon reflection? Alan, why don't you start us off? Guests go first. Well... Okay. Uh, well, I guess my reactions, first of all, is, and I guess it's natural because, as you mentioned, you know, the, the focus was in the Haredi world. But if you look at the regular press, you know, it's kind of moved to back page news at this point. Um, sure. I, I guess until there's like an official, uh, you know, the official inquiries start giving their reports and things like that, it's going to, you know, move to the back. It's going to stay now underneath. Um, in the Haredi press, uh, it's really one that I I follow. It's still the front page news, and it's still going on. It's you know the still the the week of um, of mourning of Shiva is still going on, and it's still pretty much the 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 headline news. One of the interesting headlines that I've noticed that uh, uh, that pops up is um, when the establishment. Um, representatives, such as the chief rabbi or the chief rabbi of the police, have been visiting into the um, very deep enclave of Meir Sharim, into the most you could say anti-government, anti-Zionist uh, uh, communities, and paying uh, shiva calls, morning calls. 
Um, so mm-hmm. I, it's kind of uh, an interesting dynamic going on there. They're they're accepted. Often police are kind of uh, have a conta, you know, very uh, contentious, you could say, uh, relationship. Well, I've even seen on social media, I've seen accusations that it's really the police's fault. Yeah. And look how the police blocked them. So they, I mean, clearly just conspiratorial lies that look at the police who who created this death trap so that they could kill Haredim. And you really right. see some crazy stuff like that on social media. Yeah, so but so in the official news, I just thought that was for first of all an interesting kind of social dynamic that's kind of happened. It's not we're not talking mm-hmm. about just visiting, you know, those that are have representation in the government such as the more, the more moderate Haredi world, which is most of the Haredi world. We're talking really now about the very insular enclosed world of Mea Sharim where um, the major tragedy uh, was focused on and how would they the told us Aaron group which is uh, uh, um, very uh, anti the government anti uh, the, the establishment that they, section they where the tragedy weak. occurred that section yeah. of Mount Meron was set aside for that community which is the most anti-state right. uh, group right. in that world they, it was their it was their festival there. They're, they were responsible for the lighting of the their zone of the, the yeah of the of the bonfire there. Now, of course, many of the people who were there were not, you know, connected to their group. Of course, we know many gap year kids were there. There's lots of just showed up. There's yeah. lots of uh, people showed up. But uh, so I, I thought that was interesting. I, I mean, I've had whatever over the years different kind. Of, it's been many. Were they years received so, well? They were received well. That's the point. Yeah, the, sorry, they were received yeah. very well, and it was very, you know, and the, you know, the articles in the newspapers are very, are very positive. You know, kind of a coming together morning. That's it's good. not necessarily, right? Right. Ending, um, not that everything's uh, kumbaya now, but at least right. that w- differences yeah. were put aside to share in the yeah. pain. Yeah. And by the way, we should, we should we should just also express that they're not violently anti the government. Meaning they don't work. We're not talking about the very very extremes that have been. You know, on the news with no, it's not, Iran, where they just they. No, it's not Naturi Karta. Exactly. It's not one of these. It's not one of the. They're just non-participatory. They yeah. don't recognize the government. They're not correct. Militantly anti-government. You know. Yeah. Um, many years ago, I had the whatever. I had the opportunity to hang out with them a bit. Um, and, you know, very, very welcoming and very sweet um, people, like mm-hmm. on an individual, personal level. Um, so uh, it makes sense that. There's this, you know, right. when it comes down to the personal, there's exception. Everybody recognizes in mourning, but, but I think that, you know, um, that's, you know, on this kind of the personal tragedy that I think people are trying to still deal with, and obviously in the Haredi world, it's more, it's more because, uh, you know, there, that's where people are still mourning and sitting shiva. Um, and on the other hand, I think that the, the now is the the ugly work of trying to dig through what happened. Really, I mean, you know, you have the videos and you see this, and I spoke to a couple gap year kids who were there who kind of, like, in the thick of things who explained hmm. what happened. But when I say what happened, I'm not talking about those incidents, which obviously that's those is important and for people's processing, but, it, like, in terms of legal responsibility, in terms of structural responsibility, in terms of how this has gone on, and they're even now, you know, they're still fighting about what, what kind of committee is going to do it, Right. There are people calling for uh, uh, an independent state commission, um, which uh, which Prime Minister Netanyahu has has been resisting, and others in the in the government has been resisting. So that may come down to if there is a change in government or not. Well, when you resist an independent commission of study, doesn't that usually mean you want 
you don't want a an unbiased answer? Well, um, the point of hiring an independent committee is they're not going to have they're not going to be trying to satisfy anyone's agenda. I mean, I guess so. I'm, I'm sure there's more. Uh, I, yeah. I, I haven't delved into it deeply enough, but there, I'm sure there are also guidelines of when a state commission happens for different things and who's responsible mm-hmm. for investigating. And, uh, you know, um, I, I mean, I think we, you know, anybody who's up, been up to Mehron ever on, on Lagba Omer knows that it, it was a, a, very, a very old site that has not had a lot of um, attention to it in terms of 21st century uh, structures. And it's, it, it, it hosts the biggest quantifiable, you know, quantifiably event in Israel's yearly calendar, which is Lagba Omer. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of thousands of people visit the site on Lagba Omer. And, you know, um, it, there's a lot of questions that have to be answered from not, and that's what the idea of the state committee. It wouldn't just be answering by either police or fire or local uh, administration, but it would it would encompass the whole political spectrum in terms of the ministers who are in charge and and the politics behind it. It's a big political event in terms of how it goes and how it takes off, especially this year in COVID. So, um, I do think it's interesting that you're seeing in Haredi media voices saying, yelling at the government, yeah. "Why do you let our leaders, our Haredi leaders, pressure you into doing what they want? You should be bossing them to doing what you want." Yeah. Expressing a distrust in the planning and wisdom of their own leadership and, and calling on the government to take a heavier hand. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember, the, you know, I think the, I, I, you hear individuals saying things like that, but I think that's a growing, at least minority in the Haredi world after this event. I think what, are your, what are your thoughts, Matt? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Alan. So, Go ahead, Matt. So I, I was going to say it slightly differently from, from Alan, because yes, I feel the same way that the in terms of like the news coverage it's definitely become lower down the priority list of of the news coverage um but what i found interesting was the reaction of the country as a whole to to the tragedy so on monday for example i was at the president's house i went on a tour with one of my classes to the president's house and outside the the gate they had still the table set up with the memorial candles which president rivlin had lit the day before uh, for the National Day of Mourning, and I, and it, that really struck me because they were extinguished at this point, but they were still sitting there. And it's it, it, you see these forty-five candles, and you just like, like it, it, it took my breath away for a second. Um, and what I found so interesting is that the country I feel really had an outpouring of of of, of love and outpouring of emotion and grief. Um, for a sector of society that many of the country don't really have an interaction with like if you look at the pictures on the front pages of the newspapers of, of the, the, the all the newspapers had like these different um what, uh, montages right of all the victims and things like that they all look Haredi right I mean that all of them look Haredi all of the victims and yet the country identified everybody identified and, and wrapped up the the whole community in a hug yeah, of, of love and grief sure. and emotion yeah um yeah you you say of course but I I wasn't sure that it, to, to me, it, it definitely struck a note. It, it was something I noticed as opposed to took for granted. Um, and I, I found that interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, and Alan, you wanted to say something else? I forgot. I, you, I forgot what your question was. Ah. 
don't remember. But but uh, yeah, look, I, I think uh, you know once again we see the challenge of you know Israel and its bubbles of a community that you know there is obviously more that unites us than divides us, and there is, as Matt's pointing out, this sense of belonging and oneness and caring for each other. But and and as, and as you are pointing out, Alan, there's you know the humanity that we share underneath underlying all of it becomes comes to the fore in these moments, but then the politics and the arguments come back, and it's important to remember consciously and you know that shared belonging as we go through the tougher times when we're going to have to analyze what happened and how to fix it, and people are going to have to be show goodwill in in wanting to fix it. I remember what I was going to talk about. We were talking about the some in the Haredi media of being critical of the dynamic between the Haredi political establishment and what's called the Askanim. The uh, yeah. Askanim. How do you how do you uh, um, translate that? The movers and shakers. The players. The, world, the players. <laughs> yeah, the movers yeah. and shakers in the Haredi world. Um, the guys who get things done. Yeah, and kind of the criticism of the dynamic that's between them and the. Uh, for back of a letter term, the secular establishment or the wider Israeli establishment government. Um, I, I think you're right. There, people have been noticing it. Like the, this is the first time you could see such a uh, such a move overtly in the actual Haredi press. Not only from Haredi, I think it does indicate mm-hmm. a, a move. Again, we're not talking about huge, giant steps, but I, I would argue that it, it, it indicates a, a, a move in the Haredi world. We see it with more Haredi commentators on regular media sites, such as the regular television stations or, or writing in the newspapers. I'm not talking about the Haredi press. Um, more, integra- you know, more integration, more um, colleges and new, uh, colleges for Haredi to get academic degrees. Or things like that. Meaning all of these are, are, are signs that there is, there is movement. On the other hand, I do think that that also signs like a split in the Haredi world. You really see also, meaning the extremists still remain the extremists, and you'll still have there a, a certain uh, a, extremism that, that is always going to continue. That and there's this pull between the you know the moderates and the extreme of where the uh, you could say the mass is going to go in all of this. But um, well, there were reports of some uh, physical abuse of some of the female first responders on the scene by some of the extremists who yeah. were. Uh, abusive towards female. They didn't want females on the scene. Which, yeah, yeah. Of course, there's always going to be extremists. Uh, yeah, I'd like to ask a question and to, to see what you think about the context of, of the of the tragedy that and the response that Alan, you're talking about the criticism that's now coming um, in the direction of the leadership of the Haredi leadership. If this hadn't come hot on the heels of COVID and the way that the Haredi community had had dealt with that, do you think the response would be as Kharif, as string, as strong, or you think those two events together kind of have created more of a a reaction? Well, look, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure that the that there's the together they have caught you know created a certain um, dynamic that's going on in the Haredi world. Especially, you know, there were a lot of a lot of deaths. There's a lot of. Um, uh, pushback, but again, it's not. I w- we have to be careful of generalizing too much. There's a lot who hold on to the leadership and think that they held the right course in this in the pandemic, 
you know, we there are the voices that were critical, but there's also the vo- a lot of the voices that were supportive. I mean, if you go into the Haredi world, you, you don't find mask wearing today, for instance, right? Um, you know, if you go into a Haredi supermarket today, you're not going to find people wearing masks. Whereas you go into a regular supermarket, most people are still wearing masks because that's the the construct. Indians, you know, yeah. You know, when so I, I think we have to be careful about how much criticism there is a leadership but again i think it's a little pin drop like it's a move in a in a pin drop way um but uh, you know uh, look i i also think societies unfortunately sometimes need these sort of tragedies to change the way they do things like for instance you know the the triangle shirtwaist factory fire that led right. to a lot of what we consider you know legal uh uh what, what do you call it when the government makes rules for businesses uh uh, well, right, regulation, regulation, uh, workers' rights yeah. led to a lot of workers' yeah. rights and protection. Yeah, or uh, Cincinnati in like the early '80s, where there was that the trampling at the Who concert, yeah. or in England where there was trans, you know, trampling at a soccer game. Like these, unfortunately, we have to learn through. There's this sense of well, everything's fine until it's not, and then sort of we go, oh, I guess we should have been more careful. Right. But I, I also hope, and I don't know how to make this happen. I hope this leads to a greater sense within all of Israel of a sense that safety precautions really do matter. It matters how you drive on the highway. It matters how you travel in the street. There, there's a there's a carelessness in Israeli culture towards safety because ah we'll get by, we'll be okay. And you know oh if you're so worried about ah you know you're just being. Uh, 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 an American worrying about all these safety regulations and whatever. Ah, the speed limit—that's for wimps. Like, I don't know what I don't know what it's going to take to turn that around for Israeli culture. But okay, Alan, I've seen you drive, so don't take it personally when I. <laughs> but but I but I really do mean it. Like I and and I and I recognize that maybe there's a happy medium somewhere, but we're not even close. Like, it's just scary to see. Whether it's building regulations or traffic or – thank God I think fewer Israelis – like the smoking seems to have uh, – I see much fewer uh, – much less public smoking and things like that. So things are getting better. But I do think it's a broader cultural problem and I hope this is another one of those moments that leads to some progress towards that. I hope. Look it's at that. that kind of Hakol Yebeseder, right? Hakol Yebeseder. This like dismissal. And, and it is somewhat Middle Eastern. I don't want to be mean, but like every year at the Kaaba, uh, at the Hajj Festival, you know, dozens to hundreds of people get stampeded and killed in Mecca. in Mecca. And every year, Saudi Arabia is like, oh, we'll fix it for next year. And some years a little better. Some years. But there's deaths every year. Every year, it's just sort of, yeah, that's life. What are you going to do? Make all sorts of security regulations so that nobody gets killed? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the West, that's seen as like a as a given, and in the Middle East, it isn't so much. And Israel's really uh, very much still a mix of those cultures. And and from a Westerner's perspective, I hope that that's that side gets a boost from uh, obviously. A tragedy is a tragedy. You don't want tragedies, but at least maybe something, I don't know, positive. I don't know if that's the right word, 45 dead people. Yeah, I, but think, I think, you know, know what I said, mean? like with the triangle, I think the triangle uh, street fire was a good example that, like, you know, yeah, that it's, you know, the response is to tragedy, the response is, okay, how, how do we not fix what happened, but 
how do we address that from by looking forward of how we can prevent tragedies like this in the future? How can we be a better society? And the way we show that we we find this so unbearable is that we 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 set guidelines so that we don't have to bear it again. That to me seems like a sane response to a meaningless tragedy. Okay. Yeah, it is depressing. Uh, uh, which, I guess, if we're talking about chaotic, depressing things in the news, let's switch over to what's going on in Sheikh Jarrah, the East Jerusalem neighborhood. Alan, can I impose on you, even though you're a guest, to play your co-host role and sort of, uh, or is that not fair? That's okay, I'll do it. Um... Uh, what's happening in East Jerusalem uh, I, on a very and it's very level, complicated. It's very complicated. Yeah, I, was, uh, I agree. Start with the practical. What's happening? I'm very practical. There are um, there's a neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah in in Jerusalem where some of you maybe know it because uh, Shimon Sadik or you know the Sadik Shimon who's lived the you know a few hundred thousand years ago, not hundred thousand, but thousand, you know, a couple no. thousand years ago. Uh, lived a couple thousand years ago. Um, in, in, in the memory of the rabbis, Shimon Sadik met Alexander the Great, Great when he came to Jerusalem. So you're exactly. talking 4th century BCE, something like that. Correct. About 2,500 years ago. So he um, uh, his, his uh, tomb is supposedly is Tra- there. Traditional tradition, tomb. Thank yeah. you. Traditionally is, is believed to be in that neighborhood. And uh, before uh, the War of Independence was a um, small Jewish neighborhood surrounding that tomb and that, that historic site. In 1948, Israel lost that area to uh, Jordanians, and um, the Jordanians decided to settle some of the um, Palestinian refugees from that war in that neighborhood, um, and they built houses for them under the direction of the UN, and... So Jews lost homes on one side of the ceasefire, Arabs lost homes yeah. on the other side of the ceasefire, Arabs displaced from what became Israeli neighborhoods, the Jordanians placed in this Jewish neighborhood. In this Jewish neighborhood. What and was a Jewish neighborhood. What was a Jewish neighborhood. I assume there weren't houses there or anything left from the war because they came to an agreement with UNRWA, the UN um, organization that deals with Palestinians, that they would build them houses and then they would get these houses and they would not be considered refugees. Because they were getting houses on land in Jerusalem, I guess that was the that was the reasoning. On the other side, the Jews that left there were I don't know exactly the the Sheikh Jarrah Jews, but I know like Jews from uh, from the old city were given houses, Arab houses in Katamon and Baka, um, mm-hmm. where at least one of the you know some of these families had come from that were being mm-hmm. repla- you know displaced and then resettled in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. So you kind of had a switching of populations, each getting each other's homes, you could say, in some in some way. Um, uh, and so the Palestinians have been living there since 1950, you know, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. uh, or so. And uh, basically, um, when Israel recaptured the area, so again, there's questions of who owns the land. What happened to these particular... In 67. In 67, thank you. What happened to these particular homes uh, that, that are being contested now is that Jordan never actually gave them ownership of their homes and lands. So that's the first problem where they got shafted. 
they don't they don't own the deeds to the land. They were like I guess leaseholders. The Jordanians didn't create for them legal title to owning that land, right? So that they could be the official owners. They were given free homes there under the permission of UNRWA by Jordan. But that doesn't give them a lasting legal claim, right? They were kind of le- let's, like, let's say they were leaser. They were leasing it, not not yeah. not owning it. And then when Israel came in, and Israel passed laws that that Jews could file for their old homes in East Jerusalem back, um, assuming there was no ownership on those places, like there was no legal ownership. So these Arab families, these Palestinian families, didn't have legal ownership now on these houses. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, that Israel did not c- pass a, c- you can say, a, a, I guess, a corresponding law that they could claim their houses back. But again, Israel transferred Arabs legal. Can't. Arabs can't. On the other hand, Israel had transferred legal. I know from, at least from at least anecdotally, I know people that I knew who live in Katamon, they had legal, like Israel gave them legal ownership of those homes. So they wouldn't be in that situation because they had... Legal ownership, because had these Arab families had legal ownership in Sheikh Jarrah, then the Israelis couldn't claim that back. So since they didn't have legal right. ownership, uh, basically Isra- Israeli organizations now that are generally connected with um, right-wing nationalist organizations that are trying to um, settle Jews in East Jerusalem uh, have mm-hmm. have claimed the land and sued for the, the land in court. Um, and now not the residents, not the residents who used to live there. No. These are organizations that are saying you have right. Arabs living on land, the, the the Jewish ownership is still in play, and they shouldn't be allowed to live on land that they don't own right. that's owned by Jews. So this particular house is that we're talking about now, that the court case may be decided today, the Supreme went to the Supreme Court, is that um, it was owned by two separate organizations. They weren't personal house land. The land was owned by two right. separate organizations. That organization then transferred the land to this other or- this Jewish Israeli organization that's developing. So now they own the land and they're suing back because that's why it's not those. Mm-hmm. And then these Palestinians say, "Yeah, but we've been living here for over seventy years, and we were given this land by by jo- Jordan under the agreements of the of, of the UN. Right. This is legally ours, but even though we don't have a deed to it, so actually uh, back in the uh, back, this is going been going on for." Decade, decades. I mean, we're not talking. This didn't just yeah. happen yesterday. Um, but so right. the Israeli, so the Israeli court said, okay, you can stay on the land, but you have to pay rent. And they're saying we're not paying rent to a Jewish mm-hmm. organization, an Israeli organization, because we, it's our land. Just because Jordan, on principle, yeah, on principle, just because Jordan was. I mean, that's sort of like a wisdom of Solomon's solution. If this organization says they own the land, fine, then pay them rent, and you can stay. They don't want to live there. They just want to show that they're. Although I don't know how true that is, but but uh, so they're but they saying, offered the Arab because occupants the incompetency, to pay rent, and they didn't want to pay rent on principle. And on principle, and also they're saying the incompetency of the Jordanian government that didn't transfer yeah. the land to them. Because I think that yeah. was the understood. I think it was, and I think that's what they're kind of arguing. It's, it's understood that they were getting these houses, right. and they were just an incompetent bureaucracy that didn't that didn't transfer the land, or didn't care, or didn't pay attention to it. That, that's how I understand. And this I, has been my house where I raised my children yeah. and grandchildren for 50 years, and now you're pulling out this weird technical legal mumbo jumbo and saying that I can't live here. I mean, there's because of nothing that I did wrong. I've been, I've been behaving perfectly legally all along. There's these crazy situations there. A couple a few years ago, when we ran the Core 18 Fellowship, so we visited one of these uh, homes, the Arab families, mm-hmm. to talk to the Arab family there. Right, so that that that's their under that was certainly their understanding that this is their home, and that it was just like this, you know. I mean, it's, it is. It's the Middle East. It's, you sit there. It's you a live pretty there correct your understanding. House, right? Yeah, yeah. 
So they are living, and so the government, I mean, the courts basically gave half of their their land, which is also half of their house, to a Jewish family. So they're living mm-hmm. basically in a divided house, in a divided courtyard, next to a Jewish mm-hmm. family that doesn't recognize their existence, and they don't recognize the Jewish family existence, and it's crazy. Like, it's their neighbors, you know, it's not even that you don't talk to your neighbors, you actually have a political dispute, <laughs> you know, it's like... Um, it's, it's, and, but, you know, in the end of the day, uh, it, to me anyway, look, the Jewish side says, okay, we found a loophole. The Jordanians should have done what they did. They didn't do it. It's their problem. We're going to take advantage of that. And, and these, you know, Palestinian families, which could amount to hundreds of them are, are now, uh, have been in this I mean, prolonged. If this sets precedent, they're going to push more and more. It could be hundreds yeah. of people displaced. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now, I think they're talking about like 70, 80, but it could go further, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the cases that are up for decision are for families. And, and this is what right. happens when basically what you're talking about is the little guy getting caught in a geopolitical yep. dispute where now everything becomes politics. Even the even the ownership of your like home becomes... Backyard. Yeah, your backyard yeah. becomes a politic, part of a political conflict. And people trying to and, use the political conflict to their advantage. And so in this clash of ideologies that individuals are getting ground in the, in the, in the machinery, so you now have these protests that are getting kind of violent. Not, you know, thank God nothing off the charts, but, but, but you know, clashes with police, between Palestinians who are saying, the system's rigged against us, Arabs saying, we're East Jerusalem Arabs, you know, we didn't do anything wrong, and the and the system's not fair to us. We we don't have a way to resolve this problem, and you're going to throw people out of their homes. Right. Uh, you know, somebody was asking me, "Doesn't that look bad?" I, I mean, I'll go out with an opinion and say, "I, I think it kind of is bad." <laughs> like you, you're, it's it's uh, in the in, in this ideological quest for for I don't know exact. I mean, the principle of is it fair what happened? So no, it's not. But, but that's what happened, and I, you know, I don't know. Adding unfairness really helps bring justice. I, I don't see how that. I, you what know, I, the, what, I, what I'm interested in is why the because the the, the and again, I'm, I'm not trying to get political. I'm, I'm genuinely interested why the organization who are trying to bring these Jewish families uh, into these into this neighborhood. It's not like they're the individual ownership, right? It's not like their private right. ownership. It's not like me trying to claim, oh, this is my house and I want it back. No. So I'm, I'm interested what the um, what the sort of motivating factor is uh, in that case of trying to stake that claim. Well, that's what Alan said. Before the war, it was Jewish land, and we're trying to create re- reclaim land that was owned by Jews. It's ideological. It's we believe. Yeah. We, first right. of all, it's we believe all the land of Israel is belongs to Jews. Mm-hmm. We don't. Mm-hmm. We don't. We don't. We don't put into this modern political system of of anything of two state solution or any of that stuff. Right. For the, the groups that we're talking about. Um, but what's the best way to uh, and what's the best way to make the land Jewish is to settle the land, right? That's an old Zionist right. concept, right? That settling the land makes it Jewish. So here they found a loophole. This was Jewish land. Nobody owned it. It's a legal it, method. And then nobody owned it since then, right? And so now we could do it. But the pro- And the problem is, is that legal doesn't always mean just. Because right. legal yeah. is subject yeah. to well, politics. We, we know that, yeah, for right? sure. Because legal is subject to politics. So you make a law that Jews can reclaim land, 
that was theirs, even if people are living on it, is not necessarily just. Um, uh, well, one of the one of the things I read about this was that the feeling is because there's not the opposite uh, the opposite um, allowance made. Well, that's true for this particular example, but right. left-wing organizations yeah. also do this. We yeah. found a legal loophole to get our agenda done. And you have Jewish right. homes that are also destroyed because I found this one property line, literally, yeah. of like three feet that runs through right. the middle of your house. So therefore, your house is legal and we're tearing it down. And, and I would argue that yeah. if you think that's fair, then you really can't complain about Sheikh Jarrah. And if you think that that's unfair, then you really can't justify Sheikh Jarrah. In other words... If this sort of small, you know, micro-scale injustice is fair in the bigger ideological war, then okay. Then what happened to the Jews? It's it's, okay. Then that's what happens on both sides and people suffer. And if you say to the refugees, the Palestinian refugees who fled, and you say, look, that's what happens. You lose your homes. It's a war. And, uh, you know, maybe we can talk about some compensation, but you can't, you can't ever go back to those homes because that's just not going to work. Like, there are certain injustices that do last, certainly on the big scale. And, and, and so the argument here is, well, no, but we can fix it by giving those ho- homes back to Jewish families because it was Jewish owned. And, and to say that, therefore, any other side injustices that it's, and I, I say that, you know, with air quotes, side injustices. Any injustices, in other words, if I can do justice to a Jewish principle, then I should do it. Well, what, what if that causes other injustices? Is that a good Jewish principle? And I think the argument is this is a war where, where we have to, you know, stick up for our side and do what we have to do for our side. And I don't have to worry about injustices on the other side. I have to pursue my agenda with blinders on to to the other side. That's what that's what this is sort of a legal form of combat, right? And oh, full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes! And you know, if that leads to riots in the streets and international condemnation, well, so way. be it. And the question is, what can the Israeli justice system do? I don't know. I mean, it, it's not their job to solve political ideological disagreements. It's their jobs to follow the well, law, and if it's a legitimate loophole. Yeah. On the other hand, I mean, we can say that. I mean, it's also. I mean, I think it's a justice's job to interpret law, also. Yeah. And to uh, you know understand why the laws were made and how they were made, and were they made for for an individual to get his land back, or was it made for? You know, institutions to to replace people. You know, you know what I'm saying. Like here, it's that. That's a. You know, yeah. the the court could say, well, the, this law was intended for individuals or for an institution. Now that they've they've hired it out to another institution and they're settling people there who have no connection to any of this, that's not why the law was made applicable. Uh, it was made right. I mean, there is the, no no law. Every law needs to be interpreted. And that's what a justice is doing. So a justice can't, that was kind of, that's kind of our claim against what happened in France and the Sarah Halimi thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where they were, had blinders on their eyes in terms of interpreting the law, and, and, you know, and going without really trying to take the bigger picture. And, and I, I would imagine when you go to the Supreme Court, that's their job. That's why they're sitting on the Supreme Court, right? You yeah. know, it's, it's supposed to be justices. The just, they're called justices. They're supposed to be giving justice. Right. So I think that right. there is, uh, you know... It, I, I would say the argument you're making makes, is one side of an argument in the philosophy of law. Right. I right. do think there's another side. Yeah. 
and it is complicated. Absolutely. But I would, I, I would, I would say to our students and and to our listeners, uh, I mean, you could support what the, what these organizations are doing. You you can you can you cannot support it. That's up to you and how you think it's best. You know, discuss it, think about it, come to your own decision. But uh, I do think this is one of those things where you do have room to, and, and don't be a bad, don't don't feel guilty or bad if you think that this you if you don't like watching these pictures of people being dragged out of their homes, uh, you don't have to feel guilty that that you're betraying quote unquote your side if you disagree with this policy. But I think I also think that the, just to reiterate, I'll just sort of end it is that for me is that your point that is made is very important. If you are, if you do believe that this is this is you know on whichever side, you need to be consistent. So when the same mm-hmm. thing happens on the uh, on the other side of the fence, meaning against Jewish homes in you could say the territory right in the West Bank or other places, so you need to be consistent, right? If you think uh, mm-hmm. that th- these legal type of, of issues are, so if we go by the law. That's what the law says. So the law says your house is over the green line, over the over your property line, and it belongs to this, and they have to lose it. I think that that's my house. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an important point. The consistency is uh, is an important, I think, principle that we should hold by in terms of... It is if you ideals. care about justice and morality. Yeah. It's not important if you're thinking purely tribally and my side is in unrestrained combat against your side. Yeah. So that's also a decision you have to make. Do you want to be just a tribal combatant or a moral seeker of justice? That's also part of the equation. And I don't think it divides that neatly on this issue. I, I, I acknowledge that it's a complicated issue. But, uh, yeah. but I think that's also some of the factors to consider. Well, hopefully we are building a world of more justice where our means and our ends are both uh, just and in pursuit of greater justice, greater health, greater peace, and uh, greater safety. Um, and I mean, I mean, I mean. Yeah, and we all have to do our part to getting there. So thank you, Matt. Thank you. I know you're tight for time, so thank you so much. Thank you, guys. I'm, I must ask. Have a good afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Shabbat shalom to you and our listeners. Yeah. Bye-bye. And uh, Alan, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thank our thank listeners you, don't know that we do get to chat once in a while, but uh, I'm happy for them that they got to hear you this week. Yeah. Okay. Be well. You don't have to log off, but it is the end of the episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.